The only way he gets out early is when a white judge in Elizabethtown learns of this case and writes the attorney for the other fellow and says, this is an outrage. There was no justice in this case at all. He didn't get a hearing. He didn't get a lawyer. He, you didn't serve him notice. And he does get released, but he doesn't get compensation for his months in jail. So full justice is not achieved. From NCPR, welcome to Northwards. People, ideas, and conversations from and about Northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support for the Northwards podcast comes from St. Lawrence University, where a strong liberal arts tradition with real-world applications equips students to solve 21st century challenges. stlawu.edu. I grew up in a pretty diverse place. If you look at my high school yearbooks from the 80s, probably 40% of the kids are white, maybe a third are black, and there were lots of Asian American and Hispanic students as well. And regardless of all of our differences, we all had really bad hair. The experience of being around so many people from so many backgrounds informed a lot of my worldview. So it was a bit of a change when I went to college in rural Iowa. Not a very diverse place then, not a very diverse place now. And you couldn't help but wonder how attitudes towards race among many people there were formed without any day-to-day exposure to people of diverse backgrounds. Drive around today in the North Country, and it's kind of the same story. Even before it snows, this is an overwhelmingly white place. There are several organizations who are trying to make our region more hospitable for people of diverse backgrounds. And we learn in a new book by writer Amy Godin that those efforts have actually been going on for more than 150 years. Godine, who lives in Saratoga Springs, joins us now to talk about the book called The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. It is great to talk to you. Oh, delighted. Thanks for having me. You have been working on issues of race and racism and migration patterns among black people in the Adirondacks for a long time. Um, How do you see this book fitting into the context of your life's work? It's really a wider context than that. It was uh, interest from the beginning when I first came to the region in, in invisible communities. And I started at that point with more of an emphasis on wider ranging ethnic enclaves and communities in the Adirondack region. My particular interest in this story only happened, only really launched in the late 90s, 2000 aughts when I was solicited to Um, curate an exhibition on Timbuktu for the social justice group John Brown Lives of Westport, New York. And I was discouraging. I said, there's really nothing, not much story there. There's, you know, read Donaldson. He'll tell you it was a, was a joke. Nobody came, nothing happened. Nobody stayed. The story's all about John Brown. Martha Swan, the head of JBL then and now said, give it a try. See what you think. I have a feeling you'll turn up something. And, you know, 20 years later, here we are with a tome on what I thought <laughs> 50-page pamphlet at best, if I could swell it that big. So my my interest sort of shifted and, and honed down from a wider stretch to a somewhat more narrow stretch. But now it will widen again, I think, that the book is completed. You said you imagined this as like a 50-page pamphlet. Did you feel yeah. like you went into it thinking that you you knew everything that you needed to know? Absolutely. I thought, oh man, this is a this is a no-brainer. This is a story of a of an idea that completely failed and 
I can do this in no time. And the more we dug, um, the more we discovered the, con the, the, the incredible um, role that the Black abolitionist activist agents played in soliciting the 3,000 grantees who accepted land, the several families that did come up, in fact, the wider extent of the territory than what I envisioned. I thought it was just the tiny community of settlers around John Brown's home in North Elba, but in fact, it extended up into Franklin County, into the town of Franklin and up to Loon Lake, and there were grantees who were farming in um, outside E-Town in New Russia. It's a wider territory than had ever been explored, mostly because town, town historians who looked at this were looking at their own turf and not looking beyond it and not maybe weaving the wider tapestry that needed to be um, developed for this story. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think, you know, you, you've mentioned John Brown a couple of times. And I, I think if you asked most people if they knew anything about black pioneers in this region, they might know something about John Brown and his role in advancing black opportunity. But the, the name they'd know less about uh, is a guy that's really kind of at the center of your book or near the center of your book. Um, what should people know about Garrett Smith? Oh, he was a remarkable guy. And he's the reason that um, John Brown came here. He is the one who developed a plan to settle 3,000 Black New Yorkers in the Adirondacks. It was that plan and the promise of helping out the settlers on their land that the Black sheep farmer and broker and merchant John Brown came to the Adirondacks in the first place with Garrett Smith's blessing. Smith was a radical abolitionist of enormous land wealth who lived in Peterborough, New York, and he um, met John Brown who came to him and said, I want to help. Can I help? And Smith gave him his blessing. So Smith launches um, Brown, and Brown is enticed by the presence of the settlers who are here. Brown comes here because they're here. He doesn't lead the settlement, as so many historians have suggested. He comes in response to a, a small settlement that's already in place. You know, one of the things that seems most intriguing is trying to understand Smith's motivations, uh, because there was a there's clearly an electoral motivation. Um, there is, and, and some and some moral underpinnings. But this is also a guy who later on uh, bailed out Jefferson Davis. Yeah, I think his deepest motivations were um, faith based. He was a extremely devout. Christian who believed in the golden rule as the absolute basis of all religious action and, and tried to implement it in every sphere of his life. He thought in that simple term, do as uh, unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this dictated his every act of charity. And that explains what he did for Davis. It was an act of conciliation, an act of exampling charity and good faith that he hoped would inspire the South, encouraged by his example to show greater kindness to the new emancipated Black people of the South, didn't work out that way. But that, I think, was his motive. So I take a more charitable view of him in that than some historians have. I also don't think he was strictly cynical in his giving away land. He never once says to his grantees in any document that I've found vote my way or the highway, vote for my anti-slavery party or you won't get land. And and he would have liked to have done that, but he did not do that because it would have um, violated the kind of charity he was trying to exemplify with this gift. 
So I give him more of a break on that score than some folks have. Well, and, and we talk about voting, um, and we haven't actually in this uh, conversation mentioned that uh, you know one of the one of the keys to to having land at the time was a requirement that that people had to own land valued at at least two hundred fifty dollars to be able to vote in the state of New York. That's right. That's right. Black people um, were subjected to that racialized voting requirement in eighteen twenty one. Um, at the first constitutional convention, which embraces it. And with the exception of several northern and central New York counties, including several in northern New York in the Adirondack region. And um, this effectively disenfranchises an entire black um, electorate that some people, especially in the city, were worried would damage um, pro-slavery business interests in the city. Uh, that's one reason why the opposition to it was so fervently um, pursued by urban New Yorkers. And it isn't reversed or lifted, rather, until 1870 when the feds insist on absolute equality before the law for black voters. That's the first time it takes that long. So it's in play a long time in New York State. Um, and New York State does not willingly go for this. It's really imposed on the New York Assembly by the feds, and then later New York embraces it. This would be surprising to a lot of people who think of, of you know, everything north of the Mason-Dixon line as being pretty egalitarian towards former slaves and, and free blacks. I think you're right. I think that's one of the revelations of the story, that this was really a story, I won't say it wasn't about slavery, because the links between the beneficiaries who were free black New Yorkers when they got their land and slavery, which was in their own past experience. Many of them were born slaves. Many of them were self-emancipated people. Many of them were parented by free slaves. It was so tight, it's it's virtually porous. And so historians who have claimed, as some have, this was strictly for free black New Yorkers. Slavery had nothing to do with it. Miss the boat in this respect. And those who have insisted and Many have. This was just for runaways. This was for fugitives also missed the boat. Uh, there was intercourse between those two worlds, and it was evident in every family I looked at. And along those lines, I mean, obviously, every family and every individual had their own reasons and stories and motivations for for being a part of, uh, of this resettlement, if you will. Um, but can you share a little bit about why at least some of the people you write about came to try their hand at farming and, and living in the Adirondacks? I think first and foremost, they wanted a free farm. This was a crack at an opportunity to become... Um, self-providing and self-sustaining and not have to rely on bosses and white bosses for the most part. Help was not reliable and they wanted to have their own way. I'm sure many as well were moved by the opportunity to vote once their property achieved the value that was required by the law. None of these pieces of property were worth $250 at first glance. They all had to be worked and brought up to that value over time. But what, what I did find is in the records of um, local voting records in the Adirondacks, black grantees and the fellow travelers who joined them are voting and early on with their white neighbors. So clearly on a very small scale, a tiny scale, Garrett Smith's plan did have some happy repercussions for these migrants to the region. Maybe too, they were looking for a way 
to live in interracial communities safely and um, warmly. And many of them found that. That's one surprise of the research, too, how many instances there were alongside well-known instances of racism on the frontier. There were lesser-known instances of interracial collaboration and community building and um, town service. And these weren't groundbreaking moves. Nobody became a mayor. Nobody became a county supervisor. But people were working together on fire squads, on cemetery committees, on road work, on um, election day work. I mean, there was considerable interest in bettering the community in everyone we looked at. How, how did you go about finding the historical record for those those kind of smaller smaller changes? Um, you know, it's sort of one thing to imagine you know great newspaper articles from from uh, publications at the time, but but what was the historical record like for some of these families? The best stories came from archival sources that aren't digitized and weren't well known. Um, looking at discrete pension records, military pension records after the Civil War for sons of grantees and grantees who served, mostly in the color troops, not always, um, revealed considerable evidence in affidavits from white neighbors of deep knowledge of each other's families and, and help that they were extending to each other. And I found the same thing in tax records at the New York State Archives, um, which hadn't, as far as I could tell, been looked at, of families which had lost their land to tax sales, they hadn't kept up with their taxes, in order to redeem them from sale or to get them back without punishment, they needed proof that they'd improved their land. And they got those proofs from neighbors uh, who said, yeah, we know John Thomas, to give an example. He's fixed up his land this way. We know exactly what he plants on it. We know his family. We know how long he's been there. And all of this evidenced very close relations between neighbors and none of that had been explored before. So that was pretty thrilling for me. Lots of stuff like that. Many, many archives, obscure and well-known, helped out. This must have been gratifying to, to find these little gems. It was, it was thrilling. I mean, there were some, there were some fantastic revelations in um, legal records in county archives um, of court cases involving um, grantees or their children who were embroiled in disputes with um, one guy lost, well, he spent two months in prison in E-Town, the county seat, because he owed money for a horse he'd bought from a white guy up in um, a town I forget, and it died as soon as he got it home. And he talked to his neighbors, also veterans like himself, who said, you don't know him a dime. This is outrageous. He swindled you and he knew it all along. This horse was never fit to be sold. So he didn't pay up, and the sheriff turns up, arrests him, takes him back to the county jail. He's sentenced to three months. He's in his, I think, 50s, 60s at the time, and he's alone with his wife on their farm. She's an emancipated slave he met in the South when he was in the service. So this must have been an incredible shock for her. It was harvest time when he goes into jail. The only way he gets out early is when um, a white judge in Elizabethtown learns of this case and writes the attorney for the other fellow and says, this is an outrage. There was no, this, this, this guy has to be released at once. There was no justice in this case at all. He didn't get a hearing. He didn't get a lawyer. He, you didn't serve him notice. And he does get released, but he doesn't get compensation for his months in jail. So full justice is not achieved. 
But what's exciting there is to discover it's because of this judge's knowledge of the black community and his work on behalf of grantees that he takes an interest in this case and wants to see the right thing happens. What's demoralizing is if it weren't for that chance connection, maybe nothing would have happened at all. That's the kind of thing that would turn up in these court records out of the blue and completely change the shape of my understanding of someone's biography. I just have to say this, he becomes a town constable for St. Armand. So it's quite a swing back and forth in New York, <laughs> really. I was just going to say, there, there's an irony, of course, that the thing that got you first interested in, in looking at uh, this era was uh, when you know Martha Swan asked you to do this on behalf of, of John Brown Lives. And at the same time, as much as John Brown is in this book, I gather he is very deliberately not at the center of the book. He's decentered from the story, though we have to thank him for knowing anything about it. Because if it weren't for his presence, as really brief as it is in residency at North Elba, historians would have taken, I think, very little notice of this at all. So because he's there, they give it some notice. The, the downside of that is his story becomes valorized and at the expense of his black neighbors who don't go with him to Harper's Ferry, who don't go west, who don't, who choose not to join his band. They make another choice. They elect to stay in their new communities and to work their farms and to fight racism on that front. And it's a valid choice. And it's their choice. And it's a choice that when war is declared and their sons join, um, that's another choice that is made. But they don't sign on with John Brown. He just didn't belong at the center of this story. Frankly, he wasn't on the ground enough to be a central character. His his wife was. Some of his kids were around. But he was he was not. Yeah. So why do you think this history ought to matter to us today? What do we get from understanding it? And, and how do you think it shapes our, our kind of broader community up here in the North Country? Well, for one thing, it diversifies our understanding of the Adirondack landscape. It's, it, it returns to it a history which shows it to be much more racially diverse than we ever knew it to be. And um, it also inflected Adirondack history. It's used on both sides by historians both hoping to keep the Adirondacks pure for white people and other who point to this as an example of black incapacity. Look, they got land. It was free land. They came up. They don't stay. What do we make of that? Well, they don't belong here. They didn't have the right stuff. They didn't have what it takes. So that's a that's a use of the um, story that's very common in Adirondack history. And what we learned is that a number of Families do stay on the ground for much longer than historians have given them credit for. And they do pretty well, and they meld with their communities, and they um, are buried in cemeteries all over the region. So there are ways to counter that. And on the good side, it's complicated our understanding of Adirondack's social history in a very happy way and made it less monolithic, less all-white, for one thing, more politically complex, and more a place we need to think about in terms of diasporic history and people moving on than property ownership all the time. One of the reasons they don't get any credit in local history is they don't stay. So the understanding is they gave up. They finked out. In fact, several of the people I looked at go on to farm elsewhere. They don't give up on farming. They don't give up on rural life. They don't give up on integrated communities. 
they just give up on their particular patch of maybe not so great Adirondack soil. This has provoked a storm of interest in the Adirondacks today, and I'm very happy about that. There's a lot of digging into geneal genealogy, a lot of community um, efforts to plumb this stuff. There are artistic um, responses to this in, in fiction and in um, dance and in creative programming at, in churches and in historic centers. It's just nifty. It's wonderful to watch. Yeah. Well, so for someone who went into this thinking you'd have a pamphlet or maybe 50 pages to see a book that is this size and uh, and this heft uh, must be uh, something of a delightful surprise to you. It's it's happy. It's great. I'm thrilled about it. And I'm glad that at least um, a quarter to a half an inch of what you held up there are the end <laughs> notes. So you should let people know it's not quite as long as it looks. I will confess that 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 discovering that so many pages of that were endnotes was a slight relief as I was getting ready for this interview. <laughs> it jumped out at me. There's some really remarkable pictures that you were able to use in this book. And the thing that struck me is what must have been going through the minds of people when they sat for these photos at the time that they sat for these photos. They don't look thrilled with things. They look resigned and tired and... Um not ready to deliver all their feeling to the photographer, not a little bit withholding, cautious, I would say. And I wondered what you're asking, and I have no answer except to say some things came true and worked out, and I'm sure other expectations were dashed. You know, Jim Crow is a reality all over the North in its own subtle, coded way, and the upward mobility that the children of the grantees experienced was not what their parents found on the front frontier. It was much easier to get on with things when you were a pioneer and you had neighbors helping neighbors on a rough, needy frontier that compelled mutual collaboration. Later on, when the economy shifts to a service economy and industrial um, uses for the frontier and um, market-oriented farming, big farms start to consolidate out of the little scratch farms that the pioneers had started. It's not so easy for a poor farmer in this country, white or black. It's not race-driven. The catastrophe is everybody. And the outflow of poor people from the Adirondacks is fantastic. I think that's a long way from your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, but the but the but the image of them as tired and resigned is one that uh, I, I think I thought those same uh, those same words. So yeah. it's 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 gratifying to hear you say it as well. No, it was tough finding evidence that at all there were no pictures in the book and are none of black farms, of barns, mm -hmm. of families at work on their farms when they were farming. Those are missing in action. These were really poor people who didn't have the means to hire a photographer to take a picture um, until they were well along and off the farm in most cases. So that was a disappointment, but not a surprise. So we made do with other sources and it's worked out. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's worked out uh, really remarkably. Um, I'm, I'm glad I had a chance to read it. And Amy Godine, I'm, I'm glad I had a chance to chat with you about it. I'm delighted. Thanks so much for your attention. It's great. Amy Godine's new book is called The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier, and it is just out, so go find it. 
Amy and I will talk more about the book and invite your questions in the next event in the Adirondack Experiences series called In the Adirondack Library. It's on the evening of Monday, November 6th. It is online, and you can find a link to more at ncpr.org northwards. And that's all for this episode of Northwards. But before we go, just a quick thank you to everyone who contributed to the fall fundraiser at NCPR, the station that, of course, brings you Northwards. We raised over $355,000 to bring you and everyone podcasts, newsletters, and, you know, hey, great radio as well. It is never too late. You can still make a donation at ncpr.org give. And when you contribute just $10 a month, you can proudly show off your love for Northwards with the brand new Northwards trucker cap you can find. Find a picture of the trucker cap and a whole lot more at ncpr.org slash give. Now here is our own Ethan Shanty with more credits than you can shake a stick at. Northwards is an NCPR podcast production. The show is written, edited, and produced by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Caitlin Kelly handles our social media, Bill Hanel is our digital director, and Doyle Dean is our production manager. Music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.